Boys Don't Try podcast, episode two, Disadvantaged Children. Welcome to episode two of the Boys Don't Try podcast. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Matt and Mark. Uh, how are we doing, gentlemen? I got told off by, by calling, for calling you gentlemen. I was using gender-specific language. Someone in my department told me off. Is that bad? Is that? I don't know what else to call you. I like I I like gentlemen. I don't mind that, um, but uh, I don't know how Mark feels. We we are men. We are definitely men, and uh, I think there yeah, are a few, I'm happy with that. There were a few lads and fellas thrown in as well. I think that was a bit more of the issue, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's I I personally have no I I I'm happy uh, amongst us three to use those terms if if you two are comfortable with them. Yep. Yeah, no no problem with me, that one. <laughs> How's lockdown going, gentlemen? Because we, we need to address it, don't we? We're in very strange times. It's uh, important to say that we're obviously being socially distant. We're doing this all over the interweb. Are you finding it difficult? You say um, we're all diff- we're, we're, we are socially distancing and we're not in the same room. Um, if the listeners think that it does sound we're like we're in the same room it's because james made me buy a nerdy expensive microphone i um, think you'll find it was very very good value it was actually i <laughs> I'd, I'd quite like listeners to kind of imagine us sat in a in a in a, in a room in, a, in a, i don't know in a bed sit somewhere and we were all kind of <laughs> squeezed in and we've been forced to do this just for the purpose of the podcast for the next three months and that, that'd be good that'd be good um yeah, it's it is it's difficult though, isn't it? I mean, I'm at home with with three children. I'm trying to manage my work and 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 my wife's work and all that sort of stuff. It's a real challenge, isn't it? I'm I'm finding it tough. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm working a lot. Um, I I ain't doing too good at the parenting thing. Like, I go on Instagram or Twitter, and everyone's doing these amazing things with their kid. I literally put mine in front of YouTube. Right, I let her watch whatever she wants for about eight hours a day, um, and then I give her like a fish finger at the end of the day, and that's it. Like, like you've got other like everyone else, like their kids are doing like yoga and um, like more yoga, and they're eating avocados. And are we are we in danger of are we in danger of seeing the uh, the the sort of perfect life on social media syndrome thing? Are people trying to trying to say that they're doing the best thing when actually they're finding it as difficult as the rest of us? I mean, the people I follow on social media are teachers, and and I think they are actually just doing those things. Like, they teachers are a good bunch, and they're they're doing stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely being outshone in the uh, homeschooling department by my wife, who, who's not a teacher, um, but it turns out, according to my kids, she's much better at teaching than me. So uh, <laughs> there's a pos- there's a possible career change for her at the end of this. Well, but yeah, yeah. My wife teaches primary, and my kids are all that sort of age, so. They're much more enjoying time with mummy than they are with daddy. So but here we go. Here we go. Um, well, it kind of leads us on. It kind of leads us on though to a, an important question. I think there's been some stuff in the media over the last couple of days about the fact that lockdown situations like this might be harder for boys. So I thought that'd be a nice place for us to start today. Do we? Do we? Do we think that's possible or feasible? I think we need a, a clarification exactly what we mean. I think. Um... An answer, the simple question is no, I don't think it's harder. If we're talking about um, effect on boys mentally, I think, I mean, to say that boys are struggling 
uh, or will struggle in lockdown is to also say that girls won't struggle. And I think that's that's problematic. Um, you know, not seeing your friends, being stuck indoors while, um, you know, your dad makes you watch yet another YouTube video um, with a fish finger is, is going to be just as difficult for for a girl as it is a boy. So um, I'm I'm sceptical. I'm really sceptical. It's coming from a stereotypical place, isn't it? It's this idea that, that, that boys need to be active, that boys are like dogs and that you've got to let them out for a run around and, and they won't be able to cope with being stuck in front of a computer and, and doing a set amount of work and having the same kind of expectations. And I think that's where a lot of this is coming from, which is really worrying. Yeah, and exercise is good for everybody. The moment you start saying things like boys are going to find it hard because they need more exercise is to then start going down the route of, well, girls need less exercise. And I just I just think, well, kids need exercise. <laughs> just, just that, an adult, so like people. It's slipping into the, the VAK stuff again, isn't it? It's what we talked about last week, the kinesthetic learner idea that's still hanging on in there in, in, in some uh, quarters. Can I offer an alternative perspective though because you've talked in the book about boys not performing in the classroom because of the stigmas that might be attached and not wanting to seem to be clever and that sort of stuff therefore is there a possibility that lockdown might actually be working for some of them in that they can do that without those pressures right gentlemen would you like the bad news or the good news oh my god you're writing a book with mark enser don't do it stay with me (laughs) bad news first always bad news first Okay, all right. Let's have have a look at some grim statistics about uh, boys, home learning, attitudes to to studying independently. Um, Girls take more pride in their productivity. Girls put in more effort when they feel that they're struggling with something. They show higher levels of resilience when things get difficult. They're more likely to ask for help when things go wrong. Um, Girls are less likely to use ineffective learning strategies Boys spend half as much time, on average, as girls doing their homework. Uh, so that that's that's not a good picture, is it? That would suggest that if you've got boys who are working at home, tapping away on their computers with the work that's been set for them, that it's not going to go well for them from a from an academic point of view. Where's where's where are those facts from, Mark? Oh, that's a whole range of, of studies into um, into self-regulation strategies, metacognition strategies, boys' motivation and so on. So there's, there's a whole range of probably probably quoted about 15 studies there um, in, in all that. OK, so but where there is bad news, there is often good news. Yeah. And you, you, you've alluded to it at the start, James, where in the chapter we're going to talk about in, in the next episode, peer pressure, shows that. The, one of the massive things that's holding boys back is worrying about what their mates think. The ones who are, who are trying to appear cool, the ones who are trying to fit in in school, um, who want to do well, and I think deep down the vast, vast majority of boys do want to do well, they are often put off by the idea of being called a geek or a nerd, uh, and there's not that at home. They can crack on. And, and it's interesting that, that one of my colleagues sent me a message today saying she, she's been looking at the the boys in her classes who are, who are um, really getting stuck into their work and they're the ones that are surprising her, the ones who are often reluctant to, to do work in school. And she's seen this as a real positive, that, that boys are, are escaped from the shackles of peer pressure and are really cracking on. So that's that's some good news for you. Hopefully that's going to out, out, outbalance everything else. Yeah, it's, it's not going to though, is it? There's still going to be lots of gaps for lots of lots of children, boys and girls, isn't it? That's the, that's the issue we've got. Yeah, here. yeah. And obviously, those things are going to be exacerbated, in particular, for disadvantaged children. Of course, yeah. I mean, um, 
you know, disadvantaged children will, will, will perhaps have the will and the desire and they might too, you know, um, realise the advantage that they have now that there's no peer pressure to to, to scupper their, you know, their efforts. Um, but you can have all the will and desire in the world, but if you haven't got the resources, books, internet access, all the will and desire in the world isn't going to get you as far as those that have will and desire, but also the internet and... Um, uh, you know, books and, and, and parents that can help as well. Um, well, I think that, that leads us nicely into what we're talking about um, in the main crux of our, of our talk today, which is uh, your chapter on disadvantaged students. Before we start getting into the crux of it, Matt, um, you've had this, you've agonised a bit over the terminology here, haven't you? Um, what's the issue with the way we refer to this group of students? Do you know what? When when you're talking about disadvantaged students, there's 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 loads of um, there's loads of issues. Firstly, if we take this term disadvantaged, um, I think that's quite problematic. I think when we use the phrase, although we might not want to say it um, aloud, really, when we say disadvantaged, we mean poor, um, in you know economically or financially. Um, but what it does suggest, though, that, that term disadvantage is that all um, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds are lacking, which, quite frankly, they're not. Um, so I think the term disadvantaged is, is problematic. We went for it in the book because that's kind of the word that's in much of the literature, certainly much of the official literature now. Um, you know, it's what the government and, 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 the, and the, education, the Department for Education are using. Um, and disadvantage there is preferable to another another problematic term, which used to be used uh, far more often, which is working class. Um, now, still lots of the literature, lots of the research will use the term working class. So I don't think it's one necessarily we can um, reject outright. I think that we might, with some people, if we want to engage some, some people, we still need to use that term. But uh, we rejected it in the book um just because it's outdated you know um i think it could be rightly argued that lots of people who might be called working class are actually very well off in the book i talk about you know all my mates um none of whom went to university all in trades um, and manual jobs which maybe 20 30 years ago would have um made them working class maybe it still does but you know they've all got two houses and go on four holidays a week, whereas you know I'm the only one of all my mates um, who went to university, and I've got I've got nothing, you know. So I think the term working class is is problematic. So when I use the term disadvantaged pupils in in the book, I'm not referring to what previously would have been called working class. I use a term that um, Mike Savage. Um, He's an author of a wonderful book um, called Social Class in the 21st Century. And he's an academic that did, um, I think it was on the BBC, it was called the Big Class Survey. It's the biggest investigation into British class structures that, that that's ever been. Um, and he says, actually, there isn't a free part class model, working class, middle class, upper class. He, um, he says that actually it's a lot more nuanced than that. Uh, he offers seven different classes, as it were, um, but those at the bottom of that um, that seven-runged ladder 
are a class which he refers to as the precariat class. People in the precariat class are so called because their day-to-day lives and their day-to-day living um, is precarious. Paycheck to paycheck living. Yeah, it's not just finance, actually. So so the people in the precariat class, they have low um, levels of financial capital or economic capital, but also low cultural capital. Um, and also, I think, uh, low social capital. So let me put that in context. Uh, I, for example, according to Mike Savage, I'm um, what's called an emergent service worker. Lots of young, te- I'm not saying I'm young, but lots of youngish teachers and people in the NHS will, will be these emergent service workers. So an emergent service worker is somebody who is low in um, economic capital, all right, but they'll have moderate to good social or cultural capital. So in other words, as an emergent service worker, I have no money. I've got no savings. I've got no house. Um, I've got no asset. I mean, I've got a car. Um, but that's it. And I live from pay packet to pay packet. If my boss decides to stop paying me tomorrow, I've got nothing. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily make me um, a member of the precariat class because whilst I've got low economic capital, I still um, have, because of my education, it's given me access to people with a high kind of a higher financial capital than I've got. Um, so you could argue that I've got quite high social capital. So if I if I have no um, if I have no money and my landlord decides to evict me, um, because of my cultural capital and my university attendance and the uh, large network of friends that that brought, um, I will know somebody that's got a house big enough to have a spare room to let me sleep in should I need it. Uh, also because of my cultural capital, I'm literate, you know, and I can maybe better navigate. Um, it's not even about having access to a computer. You could have access to a computer, but you might lack the literacy needed to to navigate the world of government benefit websites and you know all the, all the, the the endless amounts of forms. Now I've got that. So yeah, people in the precariat class not only do they lack that economic capital, um, but that social and cultural capital as well. And you know they live they do live from pay packet to pay packet the, the way i describe it in the in the um in the book is i say their lives are entirely determined by other people's decisions i think the phrase i use is you know a landlord's decision to to raise the rent people in a precariat class lack autonomy lack autonomy so when i talk about disadvantaged pupils that's who i'm referring to uh, in education, the kind of a proxy that we use for for these disadvantaged pupils is 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 pupil premium. So children in receipt of the pupil premium fund. Um, but again, I do think it's important to say right now that um, even this is a is is a kind of poor proxy for determining economic status of of a pupil. Uh, Becky Allen makes the point that the moment you uh, are granted access to the pupil premium and with all the benefits, not just in school, but at home, the benefits that that brings, um, the amount of, uh, or, the, or the lack of uh, money that you, that you earn that determines you are in receipt of that. Actually, once you get those benefits, that puts you in a higher wage bracket 
um, in terms of average household income than those people whose wage, you know, the working poor whose wage is actually high enough that they can't apply for those things. So often in schools, there are people um, poorer than your pupil premium students. So having established then that we we don't even know really know what to call them, um, and and trying to and in and, and in that case trying to group them together is very very difficult. But do you know what I think that's sorry I think that's an important point actually. Um, the fact that it is hard to attribute attribute a kind of catch-all term for these people we're talking about reflects the diversity of experience, um, economic, social, and cultural capital of of the people that we're talking about. And just to say, it also really does give you an insight into our nebulous classes as a concept. You know, people have been trying to pinpoint people's social class status for a long time. And it's such a slippery concept that we, I think we, we kind of feel as if we can pinpoint these these groups of pupils, but we, we're not always confident in doing so. And it's not always accurate in doing so. Yeah. And it's, although it's ironic though, isn't it, Mark? However nebulous it is, it ain't so nebulous when you're at the bottom of that ladder, is it? No, no, it's not. And partic- particularly when you come to things like non-uniform days, it, you, you kind of you stick out, don't you? You feel yourself sticking out if you're not wearing the, the most expensive trainers or whatever it may be. I find I find you often tend to stick out on uniform days too. Well, yeah, quite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, okay. Well, my next question is made slightly more complicate, complicated if we're suggesting that um, this, the idea of class is nebulous. But what I was going to suggest is: is there an issue? in that the vast majority of teachers would consider themselves middle class and therefore maybe aren't getting to grips with exactly what these kids need? Is that is that something that we as a profession need to be more aware of? Yes. I bang on about this one all the time. I'm going to use this opportunity because I've spoken on other podcasts about this and what inevitably always happens is I start to rant. So I'm going to try and explain the problem with middle class teachers now. Um, as I see it, and I, you know, of course I could be wrong. As I see it, and I'm going to try and do it as kind of calmly <laughs> and um, uh, as clearly as I can. So, about two years ago, a teacher tap survey. You had about two thousand four hundred respondents, and it asked teachers if they were working middle or upper class. Seventy-one percent of the teaching profession, all right, of the respondents, we can assume that they're teachers, identified as middle class. Now, 71% of the population is not middle class. Now, at the time the results were released, I went on Twitter and just said that I was concerned that the profession wasn't necessarily reflective of the wider population. Um, But then a new concern, a greater concern, hit me. When I explained the problems that I had here people took acceptance to it and they took acceptance or their whole counter argument was framed around this argument people kept saying to me well of course we're middle class because someone on a teacher's wage cannot reasonably say that they're working class and this was my very first thought your class isn't just about your wage Your class is about your beliefs, it's about your attitudes, it's about your politics, it's about your heritage and where you came from and where your family come from. It's about 
how you dress. It's about how you speak. It's, your, it's about your identity. And I don't believe that 71% of teachers were born into middle-class backgrounds. So why are they so quick to identify as such, as middle-class, the moment they start to earn over 25 grand? And it upset me because the language of class, all right, is always about escape. It's always about striving for something better, being the first in the family to go to university, getting away, rising up, getting off the estate. And I just think it's patronising. And I do have a problem with, you know, this, this 71% identification as middle class because what it says to me, and I could be wrong, um, I hope I'm wrong, but it suggests to me that people are choosing to forego those things like heritage and family and identity and speech and instead identify themselves according to the money they earn. And that upsets me because there are communities out there. There are tower blocks out there. There are estates out there. There are rural communities. Um, there are industrial communities devastated by what happened in the 80s. And gorgeous, gorgeous things are happening there in spite of the fact that they you know, earn less than 25 grand. And so to suggest that these communities um, where people are friendly and polite and stick together, to suggest that these kind of communities are things you need to escape, um, to me is, is snobby and, and it's elitist and I'm uncomfortable with it. I, I have issues with this as well. And uh, it's interesting that you say teacher tap. And whenever I do the, the, the teacher tap, um, surveys myself and look at the results I always feel as God I'm, I'm, I'm so different to teachers I've always felt it and this seems to kind of give some some kind of research evidence for it so, so this is interesting because I was going to ask this question because both of you two speak about your working class backgrounds quite openly um, did you find going into the teaching profession difficult was it unlikely that you became teachers and once in there did you find the profession alienating in some way because of your backgrounds? Let me let me give you one example. Once during my early day, I think I think I was probably like um, like a second in faculty or something. I'd been teaching for a few years, and I was at a meeting where we were all these kind of head of departments having this meeting about what we're going to do about these certain underperforming boys. Uh, and they were talking about how we as teachers loved school. We were the goody goodies. We were the nerds. We were the ones uh, who really uh, embraced it and loved every second of it and never got into trouble. So it's really difficult for us to understand what's going on there. And I was like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Don't make those assumptions. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I've done all right over the years dealing with pupils with difficult um, behaviour issues and poor attitudes towards learning because I was one of those kids and I think it's really helpful to have someone to come in from that background to understand what's going on in these kids heads so that's the first thing uh, in terms of was it unlikely that I was going to become a teacher absolutely I, it, my, my parents uh, run me up the other day and told me this funny story where there was a, um, a guy delivery driver turned up to my parents house Amazon guy and uh, knocked on the door and uh, said Roberts Roberts do you know Mark Roberts? He said, yeah, yeah, he's my son. He said, never. I was, in my, I was in the same year as him at school. He said, what's he doing now? He says, oh, he's, he's a teacher. And this guy literally fell over with laughing and was just like, teacher, teacher, Mark Roberts, this guy, are you sure? He was in my, he was like, yeah, yeah. 
And he was like, yeah, he's an assistant head teacher. He's an assistant head teacher. And he just kind of wandered off laughing down the, uh, down the path. And that was it. It was just like he could not believe for one second that I had changed from being this kid who was just dicking around to being someone who was kind of stopping the other one dicking around. So, so basically, I think what I'm trying to say is there needs to be more people like me in education. I think if you could just clone me, teaching would be a much better place. <laughs> So what's in, what's interesting actually before Matt jumps in because I can see he's, he's keen. But what's interesting here is that I um, I would consider myself very much middle class. Both my parents went to university, and despite growing up in a place that's pretty grim, um, I, I couldn't even dream to be working class. However, I have found myself throughout my teaching career exacerbating my working classness in order to engage with certain kids. Do you know what I mean? And it's it's nonsense. Um, because I'm not that at all, but I I felt I needed to be in order to to tune into a to a kid. But there's an in, but there's an innate snobbishness in that in that isn't isn't there? There's an innate snobbishness in me feeling the need to make myself more appealing by being more working class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, you won't understand me unless I speak like you. I, th- I think it, within that, there's probably something about traditional masculinity and assuming that traditional masculinity is more associated with, with working class cultures. If you then adopt this working class voice or attitude, you kind of perhaps get it's more about the masculinity rather than the, the class itself and trying to be a little bit more what um, what Jeffrey Smith from the University of Hull calls a cultural accomplice. I think that's that's probably where that's coming from. Wow, Mark, you see straight through me. <laughs> so, so do they, James. So do they. <laughs> um, okay, so how does then the aspiration of university fit into this? Because that seems to be where we want to push as many kids as possible. Get to university, get to university, get to university. That's your that's your route to a better existence. Um, and it's interesting, earlier on when you were talking about the precariat, Matt, you, you said about the fact that education gave you access. Um, those words. Are, are we wrong to be pushing kids towards university as an aspiration? I don't think we're wrong, necessarily. But if we're going to push kids to university, we need to accept that university experience will differ hugely depending on the postcode that you were born in. The Institute for Fiscal Studies in in 2015, um, they did a report and they found that disadvantaged kids or kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds will leave university with £14,000 more debt than their more privileged peers. £14,000. Even when they get um, higher degree classifications, in their first full-time job, they'll earn 17% less than their middle-class peers. Again, even if their degree classification is higher. So not only are they leaving with more debt, but they're earning hell of a lot less money. There is huge inequality out there. I also think that there's a, I think that there's an emotional toll as well um on on people from disadvantaged backgrounds that go to university are you you speaking from experience there because you talk about this in the book don't you yeah i mean i went to university and it was and it was crap um i still can't talk well can't talk can't talk or think about it without um a kind of lump in my throat about 
about what I went through there. It was still easily, without doubt, the worst time of my life. I absolutely hated it. A lot of it's tied up with um, my family. You know, I was the first in my family to go and they were really proud of me and I got there and I was depressed for three years. And it's funny, it's it's funny. I haven't told my mum that we're recording this podcast today, but she texted me today and said, um, you know, when did I finish university? 2007. She texted me out of the blue today saying, look, I, I was thinking about your university. I'm so sorry I didn't do more um, to help you. And she did. She put me in touch with... Um, a doctor, uh, you know, that 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 put me on depressants and or, or antidepressants, sorry. Um, but yeah, my time at university was just was was absolutely torrid, just because everybody was so much richer than me, and with that wealth came a confidence and a swagger and a vocabulary. The moment I went to university, I entered this kind of liminal space. Um, none of my friends went to university. All of a sudden, I was different from all of my friends. You know, they were just as accustomed to the language of going to university as I was, that you go to university to escape for a better life. So I often wondered, the moment I went to university, were they thinking about me? Were they thinking that I was there thinking, I've got, I've escaped that lot, or I'm better than that lot? I remember once I came home and I had a row with my mum, and, and she said to me, you think you're so much better than us now you've been to university. I thought I was worthless at the time. but So there was that kind of, I'd left everybody at home and yet I didn't fit in at university either. My experience wasn't wasn't anywhere near as bad as yours. Um, and and, and I, I got so much out of my experience of uni. Um, I met my wife for starters. I met my, my best friend and loads of other brilliant friends. I think without them, I could well have ended up in a similar situation to you. Because I, I also feel as if a lot of my mates from home are pretty much waved goodbye to our relationship as it was the moment I left. Um, again, it was part of the chip on my shoulder, but they looked at me differently from then on. Um, and I think that, that another key part of it is just this constant cultural sense of being a fish out of water. You talk differently, you dress differently. You use different words. I mean, I'd, I'd always kind of, and I've, I write about this in the book, I'd always been really awkward using big words. So I knew these words, but I, don't, I, I didn't want to say them because if you said those words, you, you, you sounded like someone who's up, up their own backsides. So you never did. That's uh, it. You're surrounded by these people who are confident. They're totally confident. And, and, and I'm constantly being asked, uh, what school did you go to? Who's, who else is here from your school? Um, and, and for me, that, that was something that was just really, uh, it dragged me down and it made me have a massive chip on my shoulder and it made me withdraw from people. It made me stop going to lectures. It made me stop. Uh, I just rejected a lot of stuff that was there. And if it wouldn't have been for, for the brilliant mates and, and my wife, I, I probably would have dropped out. I still don't even know if I should. I still wonder to this day, maybe I should have dropped out. I still don't know. It was... That was a pride thing that kept me there and almost an anger, you know, an anger that I still haven't got rid of, I guess. Um, but, you know... But there's a, there is an argument to say that made you the man you are today, though, mate. Perhaps, and yeah, people won't thank my university for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, despite all that, kids from low economic backgrounds or whatever you want to call it, 
those kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds that go to university still have a better life chance than those that don't go at yeah. all. Um, so I do think we should encourage people. Um, for me, for me, there's there's a subtle difference. It's not about telling all kids they need to go to university. It's telling all kids that university could be an option for them should they wish to choose it. You know? Yeah, they can. They can, they can but, but, go to But also, doing more to support them and doing more to say, this is the kind of thing you're going to get depending on where you go, uh, and getting more kids who've, who've gone off to university who, who are like you to come back in and say, okay, this is what it's like, and to talk to you and to, to kind of prepare you for it. And and, and every, yeah. everybody's different. So you might get some, some working-class kids who are a damn sight more confident and uh, kind of self-assured than we were going away at that stage. Um but but yeah, generally, I think you need to prepare. And I think the other key, key thing is this idea about selling university as this, it's all, it's going to give you riches, it's going to give you this dream job, it's going to give you that. Um, I don't think that that's healthy motivation, particularly for boys from, from disadvantaged backgrounds. I think a key thing is if you're going to go to university, go because you bloody love your subject and you want to know more about it and you want to go for the sake of the knowledge. Because that's something that's a lot easier to hold on to than this trying to think about it as this kind of financial deal where you go, you work out for three years and then you get a better life. I don't think that's a way to sell it. It's also quite disparaging towards towards non-academic careers, isn't it? Um, the idea that if you, that university is this golden ticket and actually everything else you do is not worth as much, that's just rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, and there'll be some yeah. kids that will literally they'll they'll be able to look on it rationally and be like, okay, so what if I go to university, I become a lawyer, a banker, well, what if I want to go to you know they might want to go to university because they love the subject, but it's like, well, actually, I want to love my subject, but I want to be working on site with dad, or I want to you know carry on the landscape business, um, gardening business. Um, so why would I go to a place where I'm going to become something? that takes me away from what I want to be doing with my dad. I just want to be clever and, and, and be a brilliant, you know, landscape gardener or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, we tell kids that university is a way to, to have all these successful jobs, but that's not what it should be for. This this takes us back full circle to what we were talking about before. If you've got teachers who, who have been through this, who understand this, who have come from working class backgrounds, it's it's easier for them to identify with these kids and to have these kind of honest conversations and to talk openly about about the choices and not just make it this kind of middle class agenda that this is the only way forward. If you otherwise you're gonna have a crappy life. There's one other section of the chapter, Matt, that I want to focus on before we get onto some um, some listeners' questions. Um, and that you you go to town a little bit on setting. Um, I think we need to we need to sort of pick the bones out of that a little bit because there will be many 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 schools in the country that are still setting, um, and many that are thinking about changing or not. Is there is it worth us doing a little pros and cons? Are there any pros to setting? That's the first question. I suppose. Um, yeah, there's a pro to setting if you're in the top set. If you're in the <laughs> in, if you're in the top set, you'll you'll probably get the best teachers. So there's a pro to set in if you if you teach the top set as well, or if you yeah. want an easier teaching kind of differentiation and stuff like that. The fact is, the re- the research picture shows that um, actually for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, setting by um, ability or prior attainment, whatever you want to call it, is actually detrimental to them. Um, setting is only advantageous for um, the kids at the very top. Um, 
and I personally don't think it's worth uh, that advantage um, is worth the disadvantage it gives to the majority um, who aren't in that top 10% of high prior retainers. So for me, it's got to be um, <coughs> mixed prior retainment setting, mi mixed or as I call it, mixed ability um, and nothing else. I, th I think if the one thing that when, when I talk about this, um, often the people who, who, who really are in favour of setting tend to be teachers of subjects where it is trickier to do mixed ability. Uh, maths and science. But then I would say the problem isn't the setting, it's the problem with the exam structure. No, no, I, I agree. I, I still very much support mixed ability teaching, but I think that, that there are more difficulties if, we, if we're playing devil's advocate here for science and maths teachers in particular. Yeah, of course. But but you're getting maths and science teachers that are setting at key stage three. There's no need for it. No. You know, I, I, I get it at key stage four as the GCSEs come near, but I don't think it needs to be happening lower down the school. Okay, so why not then? What are the reasons not to set? Why shouldn't we be setting? Uh, well, the first one, which I've just said, it doesn't work for the majority of kids. Um, it has no impact on attainment. And for those for, for those most disadvantaged pupils, it has, um, it has a negative impact. Um, but also, I think it's just morally wrong. The moment you say to a kid, you're in this set, you're in bottom set, I mean, what does that say to them? It stinks of low expectations. And it annoys me. You know, I've seen, I've been in assemblies with teachers espousing, you know, a growth mindset, telling kids that they can achieve anything they want. They've just got to believe in themselves. And then the bell goes for fifth period and the kids go out of that assembly hall to their maths lessons where they're set by ability or their English lessons where they're set by ability, right? So, yeah, kids, you can achieve anything just so long as you don't go out of your bottom set, all right? You, you know, you know your place. And actually, again, that about you you don't go out of your bottom set. The other thing with setting by prior attainment is, um, is sets aren't fluid. They should be. But really, the majority of kids that um, get into bottom set will stay in bottom set even when they produce work that warrants them moving out of that set. Equally, there are kids in top set that underperform that stay in that set. There are a whole host of other reasons, James. Devil's, devil's advocate on that a moment, though, because if you've got a kid who's performing well in a set and above expectation and you move them up, you're, you, you might then be damaging their confidence by putting them at the bottom of a class where they're, they're a bit overwhelmed, whereas they might be at the top of a class where, and feeling big about themselves. So what are sets about then? How are kids feeling or how they're retaining? Because... It, because if, if, if sets are about how kids feel, then you're right, we shouldn't move him. But if kids are, you know, if sets are about how kids are attaining, then the moment they start to attain outside the parameters of what that attainment bracket is for that class, they need to move out or down, you know, up and out or down and out. The, the other thing, and as, as Matt's made clear, that the, these, these decisions, uh, once you're in there, you're stuck. And, and we're talking about secondary, we're talking about maths, English, science. A lot of this is happening at a very early age in primary, isn't it? That they might not call it a set. You know, we, we we talk about the you can call it the kind of the red table, the green table, whatever you want. Um, they know, don't they? Kids know, and they know what your expectations are, and they're kind of thinking they, they don't think I'm going to get any better at this. Some schools ain't even very clever about it. I heard of one school or read of one school. They have um, you know a lion table, 
the bear table, the mole table, and then the turtle table. Now, the turtle tables know that they're not as good as the monkeys. The monkeys know that they're better than the turtles. And the lions know that they're better than everyone out there. The turtle kids go straight into the shell, don't they, as soon as they're put in the bottom set. (laughs) Oh, marvellous work. (laughs) Another thing is, I do think there hasn't been much work done into this in terms of research, but... I do think it has lasting impact on self-esteem. I always say to teachers, I bet you can remember what set you were in. All right? All right? What set you were in. Or, or, or if anybody was ever in bottom set, you will remember it. And if you can't remember it, you weren't in bottom set. There's, there's that really good piece of research. I've, I think I, t- I talk about this in the expectations chapter. Um, and it's Mary Claire Travers from um, UCL. Who, who's done some interviews with, with boys who were high-performing, high-prioritizing boys who, who, who underperformed and had really miserable experiences of school. And this is one of the things they talk about, this corrosive effect of setting on their mindset and the way that they just they gave in in a lot of subjects because they felt as if they'd just been dumped and abandoned. And I, I think you're right, Mike, that that is one thing that's just this lasting legacy of, of a very what can be quite an arbitrary decision. There's two kids who came in on a, on a level 4.5 or something and, oh, we'll put him, in, put him in there and we'll put him in there. And the other thing about setting, which we've not touched on yet, is we've talked about prior ability and, 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 and potential. We're not talking about behaviour. And a lot of kids, particularly disadvantaged boys, uh, get dumped in bottom sets for reasons other than potential. And that's absolutely criminal. So I was just about to raise that, actually. You talk about the, the golem effect in the in the book, don't you? And actually setting and putting all your behaviour kids in, in one set like that is just feeding into exactly that psyche, isn't it? The kid feels, oh, well, I'm, I'm worth this. I'm not going to bother. Teacher writes them off straight away and we're in this horrendous cycle. Yeah, we call them sync groups, don't we? Yeah, it is. It's the idea, isn't it? That these lot are not going to be able to do it. So let's give them some easy work and keep them quiet and stick some engagement stuff on them to, to keep them occupied and give them a bit of busy work. And it just becomes this terrible self-fulfilling prophecy. Take them, take them outside, get, get them to kick a ball while they recite some poetry or something. Full <laughs> <laughs> class of 92 vid. That kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> Isn't language interesting? Like, we have bottom set. I said to, this, this is the bit, I always say this, and Mark, Mark made me cut it from the book. I still think... I still think it's the greatest thing I've ever written, but um, (laughs) in the original manuscript, um, I said, um, yeah, for the kids in the bottom set, bottom doesn't just mean the lowest part of something. Bottom also means arse, and all that you get in an arse, as everybody knows, is a load of crap. Um, And (laughs) that's how kids in the bottom set set feel, I think. They feel feel crap. also, we also call them sink groups. What do you get in sinks? Just just a load of waste, right? They've also been, they've also called things like booster groups and that sort of thing, aren't they? And, uh, <laughs> that, that, but I suppose the, the flip side of that that suggests they need boosting, isn't it? There's nothing. They 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 know they can tell. They, of course they can. They can, of course they. Can. And you know, if you really must, there we teachers listening to this now, thinking, look, I can't get my head to just change just like that, or my, or my head of the department. But what you might be able to do if, if, if your he- your leaders are absolutely adamant um, on setting or streaming, well, you can get them to do it better. So one thing that tends to happen is um, the lowest prior attainers 
get the least experienced, least effective teachers. Because for those excellent teachers, teaching the top set is always given to them as a kind of reward for how good they are. Um, or a kind of, look, you'll be able to really push the top set. When actually the top set, right, the difference... But the the um, the difference that a, uh, an excellent teacher will have on a top set versus the impact an excellent teacher could have on a bottom set is huge. At the top uh, at the top end, it's negligible. But you know we need to get the best teachers into um, into those lower prior attaining sets. Um, also, we need to make setting more fluid. If you're going to set by um, prior attainment then you need to be set in for prior attainment. A kid can't be in the top set because they've got social or friendship issues. All right? A kid can't be in bottom set because there's um, there's not enough chairs in the middle set. All right? there, there are ways to do setting better. Okay, so I think that's, that's pretty convincingly um, uh, slammed setting. Um, hopefully we'll get a few people changing the ways they're doing things in their schools um, as a result. Shall we move on to some uh, listeners' questions? Um, just a small change to this, this area. I, I Last week I specifically cited the tweeter who wrote the question. I'm not going to do that because a, a lot of people are asking similar sorts of things. So I've sort of aggregated the questions into, into sort of slightly more generic stuff. But I want to start with one that is, I think, torturing leaders up and down the country um, because I don't think there's a magic bullet to this at all but what's the best use of PP money? Can I start with what's not not necessarily going to make a difference? One, I think one thing particular, particularly when we're talking about the idea of university and raising aspirations these kind of inspirational speakers these inspirational assemblies these kind of projects where you just get someone to come in and kind of play a few rousing uh, music videos in the background and, and get them all hyped up and stuff. I think that things like there's that... There's a rap. There's much, always a rap. Yeah, a rap, of course. Uh, someone who's down with the kids. But in, in, in all seriousness, I think they'd be much better spent on actually teaching them effective revision strategies or thinking very carefully about what it is, having spoken to these pupils, that they could do with a bit more of um, actually providing that. But ultimately, it's going to come down to effective teaching. Whatever you can do to facilitate the most effective teaching and work on their subject-specific needs is going to be the way forward. Yeah. So would would you then advocate things like um, using the PP money to employ more staff to make group sizes smaller? Is that an effective use of PP funding? Um, I'm, I'm not convinced by the evidence on on smaller group sizes i'd certainly not want to do anything that's going to be kind of extra intervention that's outside of the classroom uh in in the past i've worked uh alongside specially employed uh boys engagement coordinators and things like that and no no offense to these you know really decent individuals but the the most effective way to to narrow any kind of gaps and, and even in that in itself is going to be you know, virtually impossible in the long run, is to is to chuck money at stuff that's going to impact on classroom teachers. So if you, I don't know, yeah. spend it on high quality CPD. CPD. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think I think that's the way you have to go. I think allocation per pupil is problematic. Um, yeah, I think anything. I mean, the, the thing that works best with disadvantaged pupils is is better teachers. 
um, some more experienced teachers, teachers uh, who can be mentors to other teachers, um, CPD. I think investing in reading, um, you know, we know that, that reading is a better indicator of later academic success than 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 the profession or the job of, of a parent. So I do think there is something in that, um, but that's not easy, of course. Uh, so I'd agree with Mark that a lot of it is gimmicky. Um, I'd do what you'd do if you had, if you had money whether it was from a pupil premium or not, to improve your school. And, and the way you improve school is by improving the teachers. Okay, great. How do we engage the families of pupil premium students? Um, this is another one that, that are, is agonising teachers up and down the land who are desperate to do something about PP and, and are not sure where to go. Is one way to spend your money on finding ways to engage families? Is that viable? Yeah, I think there's a lot of research that shows um, the, the power of engaging families uh, to raise raise attainment um, for, for, for disadvantaged pupils. Um, but before even before that, I think the, the first thing that, that you can do, whether you've got money or not, is you can't don't make assumptions about families. A lot of the uh, a lot of the rhetoric or the, the narrative I hear in everyday discourse about um families of disadvantaged pupils is that those families don't care or those families aren't bothered by school and I think that's fundamentally wrong. Um, in the book we we have a look at this work from Granger who, who looked at a lot of the literature from education policy documents um, and uh, the official literature, you know, of, of these various institutions and and, and, and and educational bodies, they they really do use terrible language to describe parents uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds. One of them um, said that um, the parents parents from disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to neglect their children emotionally and also have drug and alcohol problems and that i mean what a, a broad assumption to make and in the very same document that said that these people were emotionally stunted um just a few lines later they then said they're also more likely to slap and hit their children so it's almost as if well i don't get it are they emotionally stunted or not sometimes if you're from um a family with not a lot of money it can be difficult to attend parents evening particularly when you're working two or three jobs particularly when you're trying to put you know five kids to bed um in a house with only three beds you know um we oh, sorry I'm, I'm ranting again but you know we oh, i've seen people judge parents by how they look you know, and what they're wearing and stuff. And we've really got to try and stop that and realise that everybody's going through their own stuff and um, we can't make these, like, rash assumptions. So, again, that's the first thing I'd say. Don't don't ever assume anything um, about a family just because they've got money or not. We also need to take into account that, actually, if you are um, from a disadvantaged background and you're a parent, and you yourself had a bad experience with schooling, then actually schools can be places um, that make you feel very nervous, very yeah. anxious. <sighs> you know, a lot of what I hear is, oh, they never come into school, they don't care, or they come into school and they're always a bit irrational, or they shout. Well, actually, it might just be that they're very 
it might just be, I'm not saying it always is, but it might just be that they find schools incredibly stressful places. We, we do need to reach out to these people. Um, I think things like parent coffee mornings are brilliant. Um, I think getting parents in um, as often as you can and support them, you know, offer them something. In the book, um, Abigail Hawkins um, talks about, um, she's a teacher who ran a coffee morning for parents. And she talks about, you know, they'd come in and they'd, they'd talk about what the kids are doing, but they'd also have little training sessions for parents, like how to fill out I don't know, a tax return form, how to um, how to access the, the, the school online homework portal, how to fill out a passport for, you know, and, and, and actually what happened was these, these, these families all started connecting and becoming real advocates for the school, whereas previously, you know, in generations before them, that school on the estate or wherever it was, was, was kind of anathema to these people. And now all of a sudden it was part of just what they did and what they loved. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Matt. Okay, this last question um, we're going to deal with today uh, I think harks back a little bit to the conversation we were having about university, but how do we make learning desirable even if qualifications aren't needed? If the kid's made his mind up he's not going to university and he's going to take over dad's plastering business or whatever, how do we make him want to better himself educationally? I think you've got, you've got to look at, at the idea behind what makes someone motivated to learn. Uh, and as we talked about last time about this idea of, of engagement and, and trying to sell aspirations as a way to better yourself by, by getting more money and things like that, I, I think you've got to very much push for subject-specific success. And I think that, that so much of it, as what we can do as, as individual teachers in our individual classrooms, is make them want to get better at something by tasting a bit of success in it, by recognising, oh, actually, there's a lot more to this kind of geography lark than I thought, or, or actually algebra is much more interesting than I thought it would be. Um, and, and now I want to learn a bit more about it. And, and, and the fact that I want to go off and be a farmer or a plumber or something is irrelevant. I think the worst thing we can do is we start trying to justify it in terms of, well, if you're a farmer, doing maths will help you kind of fill in these kind of forms that you're going to send off. Uh, you know, stuff like just No, no don't justify God, it. Just yeah. say, this stuff's interesting. I'm going to get you good at it and then you're going to love it. And if you don't, okay, well, you've had a really good go at it. And I think that's the best that we can do as classroom teachers. <laughs> Before we sign off, because we've 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 done another fair wax, another meaty episode. I hope everyone's getting a lot out of it. But before we go, is there anywhere people should be going if they want more information on this subject? What's the further reading homework? There's three that I can think of. Um, a lot of the stuff we were talking about with regards to setting earlier on comes from Becky Francis. Um, she's written um, a book called Reassessing Ability Grouping. Um, it's the largest kind of study into into ability grouping in the UK. Um, it's a brilliant read. Uh, also, Diane Ray has written a book called Miseducation. Uh, it's an absolute gem for anybody uh, interested in um, the experience of education um, for the working classes, uh, to use that phrase. And finally, I do think that if teachers want to reflect on class, um, they, they should really check out Social Class in the 21st Century by Mike uh, Savage. Splendid. Uh, okay, everybody, there's your homework. Um, I know I've got some reading to do. 
Um, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm really enjoying, as I, as I know Matt and Mark are as well, and I want to say thank you to everybody who is um, tweeting us about this podcast and uh, retweeting it and passing it on to their friends uh, and their colleagues. Um, it's it's borderline overwhelming, I would suggest, the response we've had. Um, so thank you very much for all of that. We'll be back, I would anticipate, relatively soon, particularly if this lockdown carries on, we're going to be looking for something to do. Um... <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not doing a lot <laughs> yeah. in the evenings. Any, anything yeah, to get away for a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks very much for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.